Hi friends, welcome to our podcast, The Albecchio Show. This podcast covers technology, business and sport, my happy trifecta. This podcast will see an array of guests and friends feature and share their stories, educating us both in the process. Today I'm chatting with someone whose counsel I seek often, and if I may say, he's just an all-round bloody good bloke. Lionel Wilson, CEO of Illusioneering, thank you so much for taking time to chat to me. Good morning. Nice to, nice to be here. <laughs> thank you very much for coming. So we've worked together on and off now for the past seven years. Crikey, it, it seems such a long time now we've put it, in, uh, put it in maths. What is going on in your world at this moment in time? Currently working at uh, RWS as a consultant, as a program lead. Uh, RWS is a leading provider in the intellectual property space and it specialises in translations and property search, proper patent search and filing services. It does date back quite some time, but they've just recently started an HR, CRM and finance implementation alongside Accenture, who are our partners. And what about the other projects you have? I know you're a, a busy chap. I, I believe you do some work in property, if I may be as bold to ask. <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay, so I did start working on some eco builds, most specifically around a community project. And it was working mostly around when I first started looking at it, I just figured oh, I could just work on another uh, custom build. But working with, uh, living with people who are like-minded and just good people, it would be nice to actually create a community. So I decided working on a concept for a closed community build. But it was based on a centralized concept of a district-based heating system, which is based on a ground source heat pump, which would be shared across all the houses. So instead of going out, it would go down very deep and share the heating across all. Uh, you'd also benefit from things like a common sewage system. We'd use water treatment plants with uh, uh, attenuation ponds so that you'd actually get fresh water at the other end. I don't entirely, entirely encourage uh, drinking it, but it would actually go back into to normal water flows. And a common solar array. So the whole concept would get away from you know, traditional fuels, etc. And I've also been working with a company called Oak Rights, and they've got a product called Aero Barrier which is, I've always liked the idea of passive houses, but they're horrifically expensive to make. And that what they do instead is they get it close to passive, but they don't go to the huge extents and the cost that it would need to achieve a passive build. And what they do is they put some canisters, these aero canisters, which go into the center of these rooms and they expose them. You leave the property and it pushes the air in. As it goes out, the little particles fill up every void in the house and achieves near passive rating. It's outstanding, an incredible thing. It's incredible, yeah. Yeah, really cool. And that way you get to enjoy a traditional oak frame build, which is going to grow and shift with time, and you don't have to worry about you losing air and heat out different parts of the building because it's getting old. Cool, huh? Very cool. So what I love <laughs> about you is you're, and I will say it in my own words, you're a polymath. You know, what you don't know about a subject you're passionate about, you could probably write on the back of the stamp and it's okay uh, because I'm know. saying it and not you. It's... <laughs> Uh, well, quite. It's um, but yeah. No, that, this is these are really cool things, and also anything which, which helps. And I think it's um, really amazing. I've also been working on a um, project. I think you already know of with uh, an old friend, Paul Stead, mm-hmm. on a, uh, a rather unusual topic. We're actually working with some Ukrainian de- Ukrainian developers I've known for over twenty odd years, in a system that works on helping barbers uh, with haircuts. So if you want to visualize a new haircut, you can take a photograph yourself and do some, some changes on screen and it would help cut or stylize it. But it's based on NVIDIA's StyleGAN algorithm, which employs us, uh, the learning and generative adversarial networks, I always trip over those words, which help and adapt and train the system to make it look realistic. So if you want to see what your hair was slightly short, if you want to see what your hair will look with bangs, you've seen a lot of these apps which try and simulate it, but this would do an accurate representation based on the taxonomy which is taught to barbers at barber school. So it would actually show them exactly how to cut their hair too. That's incredible. So it comes full circle. And I must say, I know you've spoken to me about this kind of off-grid a little while ago, and I've actually floated the idea and spoke to friends about it, and male friends in particular were like, that's fascinating, that's, you know, more often than not, people, you know, don't want to take the risk, because, you know, hair, as you know as well as I do, is, is pretty much a statement piece in, an, in a person's appearance. 
so getting it wrong you know there's, there's a real kind of risk there that you're taking and we're risk averse people Lionel <laughs> very much very much and that, that's the nature of our, our you could also you could see why I was actually very skeptical of this thing at the start but I think it makes sense also bear in mind there's even though we're risk averse we accept that there are, there's human nature Right. And even if we show two different barbers exactly the same way you're supposed to cut a hair, they'll do it a different way. They'll do it slightly different. They'll do it their style. So that's accepted. You know, but we're trying to create a, create a guide. You may or may not know that each barber is taught a specific way of how to grade certain types of hair, how to cut in different ways, in different ways you part of, uh, call different parts of the head. And this calls it out using what they should have learned at barber school. I've, I've certainly m- learned more since we, we've had this initial chat. But um, before we kind of get into the depth of your tech career, a little more on how we came to meet. You know, I, I, I feel very fortunate, as I mentioned in the intro, that not only do I seek your counsel, but I consider you a friend at this point. You know, sorry about that, but here I am, here to stay. <laughs> um, so um, for, for context, I interviewed for a contract role that you were overseeing at the Engine Group, the media company. And I'm pretty uh. sure that you didn't know, although the recruitment agency did. But the following day, I went out, um, on to have surgery on my wrist following a football injury so I actually had surgery on the Friday started working with you on the Monday so very very immediate turnaround I don't know if you remember any of that but I was actually cast up to my elbow for pretty much nine months following yeah I remember in fact um, I was in touch with you during the process and you actually tried to pull out a number of times because you're really worried about the fact that you'd be impacting the project I remember that really well and that was an incredible uh, period of time but you know you, you just, un- this is a hard one. I always take the point of view that whenever you interview someone, you have a first impression. Mm-hmm. And with the knowledge and experience that you've got behind all the work you've done, you should listen to it. And it's one of the situations that if you, if you find someone, you just should employ them straight away. And that's, how, that's exactly what I did with you. Even if I had to wait for you to recover in, in four or five months, I would still wait. It would have been the right thing to do. And it was. It, it made such a difference. Lovely. And I think the... Um, that was a learning experience. Oof. Yeah, that, I mean, I've been on some tough projects and I was actually thinking about it this morning. Every implementation has someone or some or a project or an attitude which is very unique, very idiosyncratic to what they do. And almost always you have someone who actually 100% believes they know exactly what they need to do even though they've never done it before. So you give it a shot, you listen to them, you let them try it out. And those are one of the situations. And on top of that, this was a TAP project. For anyone who doesn't understand what a TAP project is, it's a technology advanced program. It's a bit like pre-beta. So you go into this fully, un- or you should go into this with the full understanding that everything you do will be doubly more complex, twice as long, and the users need to be aware that this is a, not everything's going to be complete. And so testing was, had to be absolute in that situation. And they fought me on bringing testing in. But when we did finally get up and running, it became really clear very early on that the users had no idea they were involved in a TAP project. It was great. It was an amazing thing. And we did finally get this out the door. I do remember that. It was September. We got the, the first pass of the sales and marketing system out. But that was through pure blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, the how the systems took to the testing was amazing. And I think that was, again, it was a tribute to, to you at the time. They, you had a sense that they trusted you and you understand what they did, more, more so because you sat in on every session and you were, you were with the finance team and the HR team and you, you could act as their proxy as part of it. So when you said, no, we're not ready, there wasn't even questioned. We are very kind. Thank you for that. I, I think the way I work, and you know this very well now, is is that I like to kind of be in the trenches with people. Um, I don't believe in dictating from above. You know, I like to have a real good understanding. And going back to the TAP project, I remember it was AX7, um, the Dynamics, Microsoft Dynamics that we were kind of drafted in to implement. Indeed. In fact, it was called Project Rainier right at the start, and then AX7. Yeah, and then the solution very quickly became D365, FNO, and that was the very, very first certainly the first project I worked on and I know it was only a couple of months after it actually officially launched by Microsoft. I remember that and the, the change from to the name was actually one it doesn't exactly flow off the lips after AX you had Dynamics 365 Finance and Operations 
that was a mouthful to say in every time, every meeting. But it also it was a change in how they deployed code at the time. It, it made a big change. But it was going through a big change. The whole system was rewritten, and the methodology was it was a very clever way of deploying and pulling together the system to get away from the fact that every time people did an upgrade, there would be a whole host of stuff which would break on the next release. And this largely got away from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was difficult. I remember a lot of collaboration with Microsoft in those early days. Um, Indeed. Around testing and feedback. And the system was also meant to be agnostic too, if you remember. And um, <laughs> both you and I were on Macs at the time. We're the only ones on the Mac at the time. But we proved that it was possible. Not everything worked at the time. But it, it nearly did, and it, and it did get there. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And that's where virtual machines come into play. Oh, uh, yeah, very much. Yeah, very much. Thank goodness for parallels. So, <laughs> so if I may be as bold to say, you are one of the very few people, in my humble opinion, that is in equal measure, both functional and technical. Um, you're very au fait with leadership roles, and one of my favourite aspects of working with you is your ability to project um, and also go to bat for your team. Um, I'll be honest, it's a trait I personally haven't seen too much in a professional or a sporting capacity. How would you describe your leadership style? I'm avoiding using the word management here because I feel what you offer is um, beyond that. Interesting. I, I, I actually had to think about something similar. In, in a, we had a kickoff recently. I'm not sure what it is, to be honest. I did do various testing to say where you start, whether you're an autocrat or whether you were. I think I'm between somewhere between a directive or and consultative approach. I tend to center around the team as the primary delivery. And if you look after the team, they will look after the company. It's rather simple. But I think that you adapt your style to cope with the environment. And I think with, let's say, work with a charity, you've got to take a much more lobbying style. But when you're working for a corporate, you can just JFDI. And you have to work on a trust relationship with the team. And that's where you, I spend the time on getting a small team. I don't like working with much larger teams. It's much easier to work with small teams who are, every individual is highly capable. Every person is trusted. And that works. It allows us to move quickly. And I think trust in the team is, is, the, is the most important thing. But the other side of the coin is we've got to thoroughly enjoy what we're doing. We, we will be pulling long hours. It's the nature of the beast. It's the nature of what we do and, and the companies we work for, especially when it comes down to the cutover sequence, etc. Or at the end of a phase, as you're trying to get all the scripts out the door. Mm -hmm. And I think I said this to you before in a, in, a, in a previous life, that it's the fact that we care. And I think that comes across in every team that we build. And I hope that comes across to the teach of the customers each time. It's, we, I like to see that th think that they see us as an extension to their company and that we're fighting for them in the same way. We're trying to establish something and make something happen which they've never had before. Absolutely. I think for, for me and my role in that team, and I, I can completely attest to, to everything you've just said there, you know, I, I certainly feel very trusted when hired as test manager or test lead to come into your projects because you give me that kind of blank slate and say, okay, you tell me the best approach to testing, how we fuse that into the project plan and where we go from, from this. And, and I think, you know, it's fair to say we've, we work and have worked as contractors. And sadly, there are some cowboys in the industry that don't have that emotional attachment that we would potentially grow and, and mm. kind of display to our clients and customers. You know, we work and we, we end up speaking to people on a personal level. I know I've I've kind of made friends with people in businesses that aren't actually part of the project team per se, but I'll still keep in touch with them because you make those good relationships. And Indeed. If I, can go, if I can go back to your leadership style, you've been very coy and kind of <laughs> come away from the question, but I think it's important to say that actually, in, in for, for me personally, the teams I do best in are the people that enable people, and I think you're yeah. exactly that. I know, you know, I, I think in the nice possible way, you're, you're almost like um, a shock absorber you're that caveat in between C-suite management and the project team, um, whether it be on the business part of things or even the partner side of things, the strategic partner that comes on board to implement the project. You do an excellent job, in my opinion, of, of really just absorbing what you need to to enable your team to carry on. You don't let the kind of gravitas of everything weigh on our shoulders. You're very good at just kind of absorbing us with that. That's very kind of you, and I think I think a good manager should do that anyway. I think that it's very easy to push and delegate, and push all the responsibilities down. But it's I think that's important. The team must be allowed to to do exactly that to 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 work unhindered, 
and I try and keep an open, honest relationship always with the team. And uh, but that's exactly it. I think you probably coined it, you know, phrased it better than I did. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I, I, th- I think one of the questions I have is that as someone who coordinates these huge global transformation projects, what would you say the most difficult part of your job is? I would probably say it's down to culture. Uh, it's almost always dealing with culture. It's uh, the first thing is a lot of companies ha- who embark on the large projects. Most of them haven't. Most of the people I've come across haven't done this on a regular basis, and a lot of the time it comes from an IT-driven perspective. In those situations, the, my first task is working with that team to help them understand the scale and the complexity of the people engagement piece to get all the right people up front. And it's it's quite a regular occurrence that people leave things too late. They leave testing or data migration or reporting or integration further down the chain because they don't treat it as important. But the other side of the coin is the culture piece means that you need to have an engagement with the, with the users so that they have trust in the fact that you're capturing what they want uh, in a way which makes sense and in good detail that you can take it further forward. And, but that time and, and attention might be quite intense for a lot of people. They're not used to working in that way. Mm-hmm. And that is a, that's a big shift. A lot of time and effort is in helping them get over that and using the tools to assist them to make sure that it's not onerous. Uh, and a lot of systems are, they throw a lot of systems at people, uh, whether it's one of the big SIs or otherwise. And they um, get lost in filling out all these forms and there's all these approvals and it, they're not taking along for the ride. And it's why I go back to the, the keep the team tight, keep them engaging. Everyone in the team must have a personal approach. And every person is critical because every point of engagement with the company is, is, is hugely important. Yeah, I, I think you've just kind of compounded my point about you being equal measures, technical and functional. Um, one of my opinions about the IT sector is, you know, in, in whole is that whilst you can have some excellent and fully capable people in a technical capacity, they lack the soft skills and the functional element to underpin the way that we communicate and the relationships we build. And I think the way you've spoken about the Barbershop AI project you're working on and also even the property elements, you know, and, and, and kind of all the, the hard detail there and, you know, underpinning it there saying, actually, it comes down to culture. We need to make sure people are engaged and supported through this huge transformation and shock to their system. Um, yeah, it just kind of really compounds my point. So thank you. And yeah, you've... Uh, well... There is, I believe there's a quote, this is a really corny phrase, by the way. There is a quote by Peter Drucker. The, the start of the quote is, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> and it's true. It, it's 100% true. I believe the rest of it is improvements, or it is for dinner. I can't remember everything else for, for supper. And I can't remember the rest of the phrase. But that first phrase is absolutely true. And I think that resonated. I first heard it working at Heineken doing their implementation. And it is so true. It, it'll always trample anything you have with strategy, doesn't matter what IT will come up with or the, the core teams come up with, if you haven't got the culture in the business, they will either ignore it or they'll just absorb it. It's, it's, um, it. it is so critical. Do you want to know something really funny? I recorded a podcast earlier this week with a chap called Peter Thompson. He is based out in Australia, formerly from the UK, but based out in Australia now and is, I, I won't kind of share his role, but he's um, a, a test director at, at one of the prestigious companies out in in australia now and he's a mentor of mine and in recording with him he's actually a corporate anthropologist so knows a lot about culture and, and that amazing was actually, yeah the subject we spoke about on our last podcast and that was one of the the quotes he shared peter drucker oh yeah so, um, did you know actually he never actually said it but everyone's attributed that phrase to peter is that is that a fact yeah apparently <laughs> ah, so the story goes <laughs> yeah, I found it so interesting that two people I, I certainly seek counsel, counsel from in, in different roles, you know, both kind of find that to be a key point to share. Yeah, it really resonates. Uh, and uh, that, that, uh, could, that every single time I've come across it, it actually comes true. So you mentioned culture there. Within the sorts of projects that you cater to, what are the most recurring issues you experience? I think the recurring issue 
is always that they've got the wrong resources or they don't leave the employee the right resources up front. There's a normally a misunderstanding of how complex and how deep data migration and testing is and how much time and effort is required for it. I think integration is generally understood. And the other one is reporting. It constantly happens that they leave reporting and they think that's just going to happen. And eventually, it although it's never really that complex, unless you're dealing with deep business intelligence, it's just hugely time-consuming. The, the consolidation of bringing all these reports together, for a large company, you could be talking hundreds of reports, common reports, not every report. But even of those, you could work out what is common between them. But then you've got to work and liaise with all the teams because it means so much to everyone. And it's hugely time-consuming. In the data migration, the only a lot of consultancies come in and say, oh, it'll be straightforward. You only need two data migration cycles. And I'm like thinking, uh, yeah, <laughs> in your dreams, if the data's even vaguely capable, possible, in decent condition, you'd have at least four or five cycles. The first cycle is just to prove that it gets to the engine. And the second cycle proves that you got through it in the second pass, fixing some of the stuff you got in the first pass. At no point in that have you really dealt with how dirty that data is or what you want to deal with it. And then you realize, I need five cycles, but I've only got enough time in the project for two cycles or three cycles. Well, whose fault is that? Uh, hang on a second. The consultancy wants to get this project in. They'll tell you what, what you want to hear. Whereas your team are saying, this, the data's in, in a poor state. We need to deal with this one. We've been trying to get around this all, all the time. And, and again, all of these things are fully interlinked. I tend to find that people underestimate how much time and effort, for example, it is just to write test scripts. You know this. But I've got a much longer theory around how I think things should shift. And I think there's been a, since the 80s, there's been an approach to the whole DevOps culture. Hang on. And the DevOps culture was, it, it's not the Microsoft Azure DevOps engine, so I, I very much suspect it's probably coined on that phrase, but the concept of trying to deliver smaller packages. The big bang approach which has been taken for, for a very long time is you, you start the process off, you go through analysis, you go through design, develop, deploy, operate. And uh, at, towards the operate, uh, the deploy stage, you do your UAT testing. And all the test scripts come to fail, and all this testing occurs in a flurry at the end of it. And I think that's, that's always been a, a poor way to do it. But it takes a brave company to do it. But I believe the best thing to do is to put right at the start when you're creating user stories or your requirements and your business requirements, alongside on that same form, you have your acceptance criteria. On that same form, you have your test script. On that same form, you've got your InfoSec test script. And on that same form, you've got your data migration and integration requirements. And what you do for every one package, you deploy that in isolation onto a live environment. You then have a very good understanding of what that one piece of code you've just deployed or that configuration does. So let's say you spin up a, a CE box or an HR box, and it has a basic construct of your chart of accounts, your financial dimensions, etc. And you deploy this, and it allows you to deploy it, and the users can look at it straight away. They get a feel for it. They, they get a, it does draw out the whole, I feel that it draws out the whole timing a little bit further than people say, because even if you do have Agile, I do find it adds and pads to things by doing this. But it means that you're deploying in a more safe environment. And you get, when you do finally get to UAT, you don't commit to two UATs or four UATs, whatever it is. You're there to assure and do full integration testing, full end-to-end -end testing at that point. So individually, you do much more than just basic unit testing. You've proven that those units work in isolation and not just a smoke test. And I think if people do adopt that kind of uh, that pro process, it would make deployments much better in, the uh, better in the future. Yeah, it's easy for me to say that testing measures and practices should kick off almost as soon as a project does. But when I say it, I think people think I'm just trying to milk the project cash cow. But I know you see the true value in testing. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, as I've said this before, I mean, um, I'll give you an example. When, um, when we did, going back to the engine example, that was a good one. Uh, or even IWG. When you sit down and you, sit and you go through the, the, the process of understanding the requirements on, from a finance perspective, you're sitting beside the BAs. Uh, although the BAs can, may well write the user story, the test script needs to shadow it in the same way and work with the acceptance criteria because it sets the quality standard right up front. 
And when we did do this, they, each of the, you know, either finance directors of each of the divisions, all would, wouldn't, uh, would always take your point of view. It was clear right up front that they had trust, and it builds that right at the front. I mean, how many times? I mean, I'll, I'll go through a, a scenario with you. So you go to, I'll give you a bad, bad example. You go to UAT, you go to entry and exit criteria, and it's not met. Reporting's not done, <laughs> or data migration isn't ready, and you tell the business we shouldn't proceed, and they should take your word for it. But they say, oh no no no, CIO knows better. They will overrule, and they they say, just go ahead. Just deploy. We'll fix it in live. And everyone in the team sits back in horror. You, you know, they think that we're just making a mountain out of a molehill. And then you get a backlash from the users when you finally go live. And the system is, is withdrawn. They, uh, and, they, and they try and find a reason why this didn't work. And, you know, hopefully our process says that, you know, although we did say that we shouldn't go live, you still proceeded. Uh, we're not trying to say we told you so, but it shows that what we're doing makes sense. We know what we're talking about. It and it's proven, but it takes the first disaster for them to trust. Whereas I find that if you start at the start and you're building that trust in the beginning, when you come to that question, I wouldn't, I instantly say, am I saying no? Right. There's a reason why she's saying no. And I think that was a good example where we would stop and actually say, hang on a second, this isn't right. And it's correct. And I do believe that the test manager should have the authority over the project manager, the program, at the point of either entry and exit criteria out of testing and or, more importantly, the transition to support. Mm -hmm. Because only at that point where the users and the testers are the joint opinion of the company. So a lot of people treat the T transition to support as rubber stamp exercise. It isn't. They will very commonly say, well, uh, on our, the test man, the project manager will say, but you've done testing, you've done all these pieces. And they said, yeah, we've done the testing, but they still don't know what they're talking about. They're still not confident. And they're still not com they, you haven't shown them how that the data really does hold, hold together. So as far as we're concerned, we're not happy to go live. It's a subjective piece. A lot of that can be picked up as part of the go live readiness testing, but the transition to support is the final, final gate. And it, it's a critical piece of it. Yeah, I agree. I, oh gosh, you know I agree. Um, I think... The difficulty is when, when CIOs, for example, make an overruling judgment, d despite yours and my better interest, you know, me as test manager, yourself as project manager, it's not coming from a place of guesswork or estimation. It's actually coming largely from user feedback. So, you know, the chances are that we will be, you know, sometimes despite having entry and exit criteria and all these quality checkpoints in place, you know, sometimes you are overruled. And, and that's just kind of part of the game, you know, you know as well as I do. But when you're actually in UAT, for me, I think it's pivotal to deliver the system at a point where really you only have a few minor or cosmetic issues in UAT. The idea is, you know, people aren't always receptive to change, but if you develop a system and, and present a system to users actually that aren't, that, that isn't up to spec and isn't good enough you know as well mm. as I do that people will speak out about it and rightly so in a negative context a negative fashion and our kind of part of this and, and gosh we've worked together on a few projects already but some of the feedback that I will deliver out of UAT and knowingly because you know I, I've said we're not ready to go into UAT you know God, present company excluded but in other scenarios I've kind of been my hand has been forced despite my better judgment and advice mm. And it will we'll have new requirements come out of UAT. We'll say, okay, I actually can't do my job based on how the system is. There's not even a workaround. How do I go about it? And you almost have to go back to the start blocks just to kind of yeah. make sure that all the requirements are there. And and again, it's not we're not there to kind of glean money out of a company. We're actually doing a, a diligent job. Uh, it's, it, it is interesting because I also remember there's been a couple of situations where you're trying to explain some of these concepts to internal teams. And yes, a lot of companies have testing teams, but they've never done this type of testing, this type of grade or enterprise grade testing. Mm -hmm. And these are highly complex systems. This is just putting, deploying a file server or, a, or an email server. This is a complex business changing system. And the checks and balances and measures which need to take place are, are extensive. So hopefully some of the process would be in transferring that knowledge internally. It's, it's difficult for even with large companies to maintain specialist test leads and teams ongoing. 
but hopefully they'll be able to unlearn and, and deploy this internally. Which makes a question, I've got a question for you actually. Far away. So, what's happening with RSAT? And what's your opinion regarding regression testing of systems? I think, I mean, great question. Thanks for, thanks for bringing those to the, to the fore. RSAT is, it, it's an option for anyone that doesn't know. It's the regression suite automation tool that Microsoft offer um, around dynamic solutions, some dynamic solutions, in particular the finance and operations, FNA. For me, it's quite useful if you've got maybe an off-the-shelf or vanilla type solution, FNO solution, of course. And yeah, you, you know, it's probably best used in terms of automation of the regression suite. However, if you are working across a huge transformation project, so you're, let's say you're implementing CE as well as FNO, you, you cannot use RSAP for CE. So the, what we've done as a business, Fortitude 17, has launched a partnership and a collaboration with Curiosity Software. They're predominantly based in Ireland, but they have a huge presence over in the UK too. And they deliver test modeler. Now we've done some the classes in session workshops on this, but test modeler can be used across all dynamic solutions, including Business Central now, which is something we've branched out into as well. Not only that, but you can use it for BAU projects. So for example, we delivered a demo quite recently to a company that were implementing Business Central. They had their own in-house test team, but they also thought about using test modeler on their business website. So they maintain a business website and looked into using Test Modeler for that particular reason. And for me, that's that's our best approach. So it, it doesn't make sense, you know, as well as I do, that cost is a huge implementing factor, um, mm. or implicating factor, sorry, for projects. And for us, we're no different. We wanna use one tool that is streamlined across all solutions that we cater to. The good news is that we actually can use it for our Ceridian Dayforce projects too. So right. we're not limited. We don't need to, ex you know, become experts in a number of different tools. We can actually use Test Modeler, and we actually have our own licenses. So we build our own regression suites, and we have our own test packs of automation using Test Modeler. And, and any project that we go into, we are able to deploy those. Touching back on the regression point there of your question, regression is huge, and I think it's something that's severely overlooked. I think it's a buzzword, and I think, as you rightly say, there are testing experts, testing consultants that work as, as permanent members of staff for businesses that haven't had experience with such ERP or implementation projects. That's not a criticism, that's just mm. essentially that they're potentially lacking some of the experience that it will take to get this over the line in a successful fashion. It's not to say that they can't be trained because you've seen and I've seen that we've been able to train people between us to go on and take on that role. However, there's an upskilling process that needs to take place. Sometimes, for different reasons, people don't want to relinquish their BAU staff to, to come on and support the project. But at Engine, for example, we did have Leanne, who was part of the IT team there and that came on and is now um, an applications test manager. I, don't I know saw. That. Yeah, very good. I've been following. So Leanne has gone on. Yeah, she's, done, she's gone on to do some great things. And Amazing. Yeah, and, and again, it just kind of is testament to the original sorry, educational part of testing, something that I try to promote. Um, for anyone that doesn't know and has not worked with me previously, I try to make UAT an educational element. So not only do we have the, the obvious formal elements of testing where we'll go through, we'll run through the test scripts, we'll do the data validation, um, and we'll make sure that they're the people that are testing can do their jobs in a way that they'll need to once this goes live. However, we also offer a hand-holding experience where people can navigate and, and not be scared to break things. You know, I'm sure you can appreciate that within, let's say, a group of 20 UAT participants, you'll have people that will take the reins and go kind of charging into the fore and, and do the, the UAT testing and not be scared to put a foot wrong. And on the flip side of that, you'll have people that will probably need a little more attention that will be a little hesitant and reluctant to to kind of on board with the UAT process purely because it's new to them and they don't want to make a mistake yeah. in, a, in a new system. And that's where kind of the reluctance to change comes into it. But I think it's really important to actually engage people in an educational way. You know, you spoke very eloquently at the start about making sure that the culture's right and that people understand what's coming in and how the project process, sorry, how the project process will, you know, continue. But I think actually, unless that kind of continues throughout the project, you know, all the way from kind of conception, initiation, all the way through to testing and handover and BAU, then you're on to a loss anyway. 
Indeed, I think the um, I think that's absolutely right. I'm going to see a big testament to that. I would also say that it blurs the boundaries between testing and training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think um, I, I'm not entirely sure why this doesn't happen more in practice. But I, I know it's something that you um, you do. I mean, what's your opinion regarding how training works alongside the testing piece? Thanks very much. That's um, that's obviously pivotal to our business now, and, and I know you know that. So thank you for asking a pertinent question. For for us, because we work so closely with users, it makes absolute sense that we segue into more of a training element too. So we have worked on projects now where we not only deliver the testing, but we also continue on and deliver the training too. So the way we work and our testing capacity within the projects that we support is as Fortitude Seventeen. We deliver the formal process, so we will do everything from governance, your test strategies, all the way down through to scripting creation. We'll do the QA side of testing, and then we'll move on through to supporting UAT. So we cover the whole suite, and even the handover to the to the business um, team as usual. For us, I think one of the most important things there is actually, as I say, educating, and doing so in a way that kind of is probably removed from what is in a tester's remit. So one thing I like to do is deliver a workshop prior to UAT and show the system and how it should work. So actually when the the team get to UAT, it's not the first time they're seeing the system. From there on, we will work with them. You know, I'm sure you can appreciate that we hear the UAT team's gripes firsthand. We are the people that record their feedback and make sure that it's fed back to the right people. And I'm very grateful, Lionel, that I know you're a huge proponent of this too. The amount of feedback that gets overlooked in UAT cycles that I've seen is is staggering. Um, Considering these are the people that will be using the systems on a day-to-day basis, and you know, whilst we can all appreciate the CIOs have a huge role and part to play in this project, they're not going to be necessarily the ones that are using the the new system on a day-to-day basis. And therefore, we need to make sure that the users, in my opinion, are adhered to and listened to. Um, and therefore that kind of takes us over to the training element Um, I've mentioned that we offer workshops and we deliver those as part of um, our initial UAT discussions but then we move on to delivering training modules so we uh, sorry training materials what we'll do is uh, within our dynamic capacity we'll deliver not only PDF so PDF stepping through each process that we've kind of worked through as part of UAT or that we know are kind of key to their role moving forward They'll contain screenshots and we'll actually adapt all the language. I'm sure you can appreciate the, elect- um, the language is quite dry at times when it spits it out as part of the task recording process. And thereon, we'll also capture the AXTR playback files and we'll tweak those too. So the language used is actually the idea and the, the kind of um, phrase I like to use is that you can pull someone off the street and it will make sense to them. So that's kind of how granular I like to deliver um, our training materials. In tandem with that, we have actually started to offer training workshops. So um, it can be train the trainer or train the team. And not only in, in a kind of technical capacity, but we will step through everything. So we appreciate that a lot of companies will repurpose staff in projects. So one project workshop that I recently delivered for a client had an AP manager and a financial controller taking right. hold of testing and they essentially won't you know they're not going to care about writing a test strategy and all this kind of stuff and the governance of it all but they wanted to know the crux and you know the nuts and bolts of it and how it actually works and what they need to get by for this project so my job as, as kind of leader there is, is to actually deliver workshops that is suited to their requirements so yeah you know some more what may want more of a formal process and we've delivered workshops to that standard too and some just want to know how the process flows and the the kind of work that's entailed in that and I, th- I think the beauty of those workshops is that everything we've delivered so far you know we leave no stone unturned based on their requirements we listen ahead of time and, and kind of create individual workshops based on their requirements but we actually deliver it to a point where on every occasion people have come back to us and said actually we may want you on retainer because we now appreciate testing is a bigger beast than we'd anticipated mm. that's excellent that's good yeah, to hear. It's, I think the, mature, the, the market is maturing. And I think for a long time, this has been only the remit of the large enterprise. And now the rigor is now being applied further down the chain uh, to small to medium sized or businesses. But it means that uh, they don't have to maintain the resources internally. 
you know, they can do it for the duration of the project and hopefully some of that knowledge transfer would have taken place and they can call on you in the future. Sure, sure, absolutely. I think one of the things that I find fascinating is that, you know, I can understand people in testing being a huge proponent and, and seeing the value. But for you, that's something I, I, I took away from our interview, you know, from, from when I interviewed at Engine Group way back when, um, that you were a huge advocate of testing and you saw its value um, intrinsically. Yeah. Why is that? Is that because you've been on the receiving end of a bad project? Do you have a bad experience with testing and QA? Like, what's the situation there? I think we've kind of covered some of this. I think um, it was exactly that. It's poor examples of where testing is left late. It almost always is. It's always underestimated or that they think that the internal UAT team are capable of doing it. And when you check with them, you realize that they're not familiar with this kind of methodology or the depth and breadth that, that is needed. The thought, and many companies actually balk at the idea of actually writing test scripts to the level and detail that is required. You know, it, it needs to learn creating new drafts based on roles or new drafts based on the function. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's a huge amount of time. It's not that it's complex, but you, again, you need to have a, an, an eye for detail, but you also must be sympathetic to the person you're trying to write the script for. And that is rarely seen. And um, I think I've been on, a, on way too many projects where the developers run most of the tests that try and push it into live mm -hmm. and they ask for the team just to quickly check it and they do use their best endeavours. They don't try to check everything and something gets found in live and it, it's, it's, it's the worst case scenario for small projects. Larger companies are better at it but isn't it better just to get it done right at the first pass, reduce the number of UAT cycles, get the confidence of the users in there up front instead of damaging the view of the system to the company once they're alive they complain about it bitterly to get proper testing in and but you never get rid of that distaste for that system doesn't matter how good the system is they still have this mild distrust for that system whereas if you have it up front and they know that you're taking care of it it doesn't matter what the system is or how much you th you feel that it does or doesn't fit that company as long as it's well implemented that system's going to survive and it will, and people will always look back on it um, and say that was a good job. Yeah, I, you, you speak about it so eloquently, and it, yeah, gosh, it's from a project manager versus a test manager's perspective. I, I think our views are certainly aligned, and I think that's probably why we make a good a good duo when it comes to Indeed. management. Indeed. Yeah, <laughs> I, so. I wanted to talk a bit a bit more about your career, and, and what I'll do is I'll kind of make sure this kind of jumps higher to the, the chat. But um, you have a, in my words, a, a very accomplished career in IT. How did you first get into IT? Was that always your driver? No, mm, I say no. Like many people, I was you know, built my first ZX80 and about when I was age eight or nine, whatever it was, and played around with computers as a kid, mostly for gaming, until my dad actually said to me, what's the point of learning computers if you can't fix it? And I, had to, I, could see, I remember seeing a number of computers sailing past the window, he had a fierce temper, and actually hit the deck around about a, a story below and actually shattered to bits and pieces over the fact that he was getting frustrated at this black and white screen. So yeah, I started with that, but realistically I wanted to be an engineer. And while at university I was, um, I was told by the customer exercise that I needed to create a company. And, uh, that, and I had to do that, so I created a, a, a computer company because I was creating too much income from repairing people's networks and computers as a, as a pastime. And it distracted me all at university, so we created a, um, a company, and within a couple of years, we were putting in finance systems, etc. And uh, it, it kind of went from there. The, um, the next big break, because I separated from that company, because that's still going now. That, that company was called Fantasia Consulting, then PM Consulting. So well, Mark and the NCL went on to do amazing things, including creating the very first satellite uh, radio network, etc. And that, that worked very well. But I focused on graphics and... Uh, animation and uh, complex systems uh, and uh, our, our long story short but uh, we launched the very first Volkswagen website where they launched the Beetle and you could change the color of the car and you could buy the car and this is 93 I think it was and that was very cool at the time but that was leveraging the fact that we were mostly Photoshop and, and 3D studio um, specialists and uh, that continued for a while then um, we created we were one of the 35 which were invited to, to start this new concept called MSN, the Microsoft Network, and uh, that's going back a long time. 
And off the back of that, I specialized in something called the Auction Center about three years before eBay. <laughs> Uh, Microsoft didn't believe this was going to be a great idea, so they gave me some money and said, why don't you create your own um, auction center? Oh, thanks, Microsoft. But at the same time, I stayed on with the Virtual Worlds Group in Microsoft. In 96, we launched the Euro 96 and Atlanta Olympic Games in, in VChat rooms. And although that was interesting and fun, we, I was also asked to create a, a chat room for journos so they could showcase this. And it turned out to be the most popular site at Microsoft. And... Um, they had to take it down because it wasn't really PG. Okay, right. <laughs> but it was hilarious. So, But the, the funny thing was, of all the things that we did at MSN, most of the team went on to become chat moderators because what spun off from all the work we did was chat rooms. We were just we were pushing it too hard with virtual chat. And then Windows 95 came out with comic chat as a spin-off from this. But really what was popular was the fact that you had chat. But that was, that was cool. And then I walked, uh, bro broke into corporate life and uh, in a big, large retailer. And that was my first Dynamics implementation back with NAV. That was wow. a first e-commerce, because we'd already one from BBSs at the time, did e-commerce, we did logistics, finance, we up against an SAP install, wow. moving away from AIX systems on, a on the IBM platforms and HP UX. Uh, so yeah, that, and then... Never looked back since. So pretty much every implementation of or, or every company I've been at has had an ERP or multiple ERP. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm counting now uh, over 30 international ERP implementations, not including the ones I looked over. But um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's been a while. <laughs> and, and as part of that, um, those 30 ERP um, projects you mentioned there, you, I know you're also at Tectura, which then became Quantic and has now been absorbed into Avenard. Um, is, that, is that kind of factored in there or is that an additional kind of string to your bow? I think Tectura was an unusual one. I was, I've come, I was coming out of being CIO at the Woodland Trust charity because my kids were small and I decided to take a little break out of corporate life and go into work for an NGO. And that was good. <coughs> Thoroughly enjoyed that. But um, the... Uh, Tectura, they needed someone to come in, take control of a team, a support team, and train them up on the NAV or Navision implementation they did at the time and present it to the CIO in seven days. And I needed to do it in seven languages and I needed it across four countries. Oh, and the, C and the COO at the time, who was my boss, said, I'm off in six hours, good luck. I think you might have I might have heard that story before, but that was uh, but that was hilarious. Uh, it was a good guy, Colin Crow, amazing, amazing character. He's now um, CEO of Nexa, mm -hmm. and uh, but that was an amazing uh, experience. We did achieve it, and uh, I learned a lot from the global support approach. We're managing teams. We had over six hundred thousand users. We're managing six hundred and thirteen, six hundred seventeen companies, and it was incredible. Uh, we had everyone from Carlsberg to Dentsply, Heineken, I think I mentioned. Ernst Young was an amazing install. Yeah. But, that, I mean, that was all amazing. But um, uh, at the time, the company was then sold on to Quantic. And I actually much preferred being on the client side. So I took a break and started with, with the work with Engine and stuff and went on to Just Eat, which is another TAP project. And uh, that was an interesting challenge. Although we did deploy across the international deployment in Europe, that was a very highly intense uh, system where we're dealing with more orders than any other takeaway company in one day on the Saturday. And that was hitting Dynamics at a furious rate, something like 14 million lines on a Saturday evening. And uh, that was a real testament to Dynamics at the time. Uh, I went on to join Colin Crow later on, actually, to, with uh, Norik to try and set up the Norik UK arm. And Norik was a specialist in the brewery industry and uh, and that work that was uh, fascinating work with Pernod Ricard, Heineken, Carlsberg, Duval etc and um, so after that went on to work with IWG and went back to help out with Quantic for a while before they got bought up by Avanade and now I'm here at IWS. There we are. Now Lyle we and always have the podcast with a nod right yeah <laughs> I, can, I, I mean you know me well, I can listen to you chat forever but um I will, um, I will kind of, um, if you're okay, I'm just conscious of your time. 
Now, Lionel, we always end the podcast with a nod to the famous book, If I Could Tell You Just One Thing. In life, what would you offer as your parting piece of advice? Listen, in every situation, doesn't matter how clever you think you are, what you've learned, I always take an opportunity to, to whoever they are, if someone has an opposing idea, everyone's, you're always learning. So have a listen, have a, have a, keep your eyes open or ears open when you come to everyone different opinions. They, they may well have a good point of view. A CIO might come in and say, this is what we want to do. That's great, let's give it a shot. And if it doesn't work and uh, you've said your opinion, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll go down this line. But I think it's very important to keep listening at that point. Uh, it's, it's also a nod towards constantly learning. And, um, and as I mentioned, just there's some very interesting books that I've, I've come across. I mean, they've been around for a while, the one being The Goal, which was launched in the late 80s about production lines. And that was a fascinating book. And that kind of encouraged a couple of new books more recently in the last five years, six years, which was Project Phoenix and the DevOps Handbook by Gene, I can't remember his name, his, his name but uh, they were amazing. And I would encourage uh, you or anyone to actually have a listen or read to the book because it's also available on audio tape. And I would probably do it in that sequence, start with the goal, go with the Project Phoenix and look at DevOps Handbooks. And they continues down that path. And it's, it's fascinating how, where people think they understood an industry and just changing how you think about it makes such a difference. Again, it goes back, you've, there's always someone more, intel, more intelligent, more experienced, so just listen. Thank you very much. Mr. Wilson, you know I appreciate all of your time and support, so thanks for letting me share a little more on your story and, and all the good work that you do. So thank you again. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's always lovely speaking with you, Emma. To those listening, thanks for having us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow us on your respective streaming platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, whatever it might be. Have a good one and remember to always make collaboration, culture and integrity priorities if you're looking to succeed, whether that's in life or in business.